Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Kimmer Blast podcast. I am your host, uh, Ben Abramoff. With me today is Paolo. Um, Paolo, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, absolutely. My name is Paolo Mimbella. Um, originally from Miami, Florida. I went to undergrad at the University of Miami. That may cause a little bit of problems between Ben and myself. Uh, being that he's, you said Ohio State, is that what you said? That's right, uh, big Ohio State fan, uh, pretty much went to medical school there beyond just for the uh, great education, but to able to go to the horseshoe to watch them uh, football games. Oh man, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refrain from mentioning instant replays, I'm over here shaking my head on my side of the screen, um, but it's cool, we won't talk about 2002, we'll just move forward amicably. <laughs> And I should note, this is our first remote uh, Skype uh, podcast uh, showing that it can be done. And if you're interested in participating anywhere in the country, uh, you can just give us an uh, email at pmrblast, pmrblast at gmail.com. Well, I will tell you this. I really like your introduction there as far as the music goes, Ben. kind of <laughs> gets, gets me into the mood for some academic stuff. I, I tried an outro uh, music last time. And I'm not sure exactly how I feel about that one. Uh, we'll have to just give it a little bit of time and see how that uh, plays out. Um, but anyways, uh, the purpose of this podcast is for residents uh, to teach other residents about new and interesting things happening in the field of PMNR, as well as to do some topic review as it comes up to help prepare you for both your board exams, but also just your career on a day-to-day -day basis and helping you to uh, incorporate new evidence. Just one other thing before we get started, uh, we always have to give this disclaimer that the views are strictly those of the people presenting them, uh, and they don't represent our respective uh, institutions. Also, if you hear something interesting or something about uh, medication that you'll use differently, remember to always check the primary sources. One other thing I didn't finish off during my introduction, I'm currently a PGY3 resident in PM&R at the University of Texas at Houston. As you know, Paolo, with this podcast, we do uh, generally two segments. Uh, the first segment is more of the academic side of things, uh, and we always like to have names for our segments. So, Paolo, did you happen to come up with a name for your segment? Um, let's see. Well, my first segment is going to be focused, and I think most of my topics are going to be focused on a little bit more on the interventional side of PMNR, and most of our interventions are musculoskeletal in nature. So my last name is Mimbella, so I'm just going to call it Mimbella's Muscles. Mimbella's Muscles, I, I like it. Okay, so the title of this article is Sonographically Guided Posteromedial Approach for Intraarticular Knee Injections, a Safe, Accurate, and Efficient Method. So essentially what they're talking about is a posteromedial approach, and anybody that that's either currently going through um, through prop, through physiatry training or maybe even family medicine, sports medicine, or rheumatology training. Usually, the posterior aspect of the knee is an area that is avoided at at most costs when trying to access the intraarticular uh, area, and that's the the reasoning behind that is because of the neurovascular bundle that tends to lie in that area. It's just higher risk. There's easier ways to get into the joint. So I found this interesting because these, these authors were pushing this as a safe alternative method to access the knee joint. 
you know, I would always be worried about, you know, the popliteal artery and everything. So, yeah, I'm definitely interested to hear, you know, what they see as the benefits. I've heard a lot of uh, the benefits of using the superior approach, but never really the posterior approach. Yeah, and I'll talk about some of the current, really the traditional approaches, um, just in brief, and then go through essentially why these guys are, are saying that this is the safe alternative and in what instances it may actually be the better alternative. This particular uh, journal article was authored by Dr. Jonathan Tressley and Dr. Jean uh, Jose, both of which work uh, or had their uh, previous training in radiology. One of them is an MSK diagno diagnostic radiologist. The other one uh, is interventional and diagnostics radiologist. Um, the journal article itself is a retrospective chart review. It's anywhere from level to level three to level four evidence. Um, it's not a randomized controlled trial, and it's not controlled. So it's just a retrospective chart. It was done at the University of Miami, so another connection there. And um, it was received June 29, 2014, so fairly recent uh, publication. So, so that's interesting that you said both of these guys were radiologists. Well, they're MSK radiologists, so they're still involved in, um, in, in, in that overlap with our field. They're going to see a lot of you know, knees, a lot of shoulders, and so on and so forth, a lot of OA, a lot of degenerative arthritis. I think they were working together with the ortho department with, with this particular um, research project that they got involved in, and um, that, that's really what led to this. this it seems like they were already doing this poster remedial approach and they did this research more so retrospectively to show that there aren't, that maybe, perhaps, and again, this is not my opinion, this is, this is what I gathered from, from my interpretation of the article, that maybe our concerns with a posterior approach are potentially a little bit overblown. Um, we already know, and it's been published time and time again, and I actually have a few citations I'll talk about, that blind anatomically guided injections without any imaging confirmation of where you are with the needle, um, are, the accuracy is pretty poor. And I'll get into the numbers in just a little bit. Yeah, I, I, one thing that has really stuck with me lately is I saw this um, image in one of our lectures, and I'm not exactly sure where it came from, but it was, a, uh, I guess, an autopsy image of a medial meniscus and you could see the lines of where the needle uh, went through the meniscus and just you know tore it up on two or three different occasions uh, and you know it doesn't heal so um, you, that just stays there so I thought that was a really powerful image. So um, we were talking about the accuracy of the blind approach of going in without any ultrasound or without any fluoroscopic guidance and the current literature uh, cites the anterolateral approach as approximately 71% accurate, the anteromedial approach as approximately 75% accurate, and the lateral mid-patellar approach as better at 93% accurate. So if you really take those numbers, even at our best, we're still wrong almost 10% of the time, which, you know, once you start doing as many knees as some clinics do, that's a significant you know, number of patients that are not getting the medicine where the medicine needs to go. And you said this was in uh, previous studies that showed this? That's correct. These are previous studies. How did they determine uh, how accurate their needle placement was? 
So this particular study, um, and I'll get into that when I get into the methods, but they did um, confirmation imaging afterwards. So when these patients were injected, they were also injected with contrast as part of the injectate. And all of them either had CT or uh, MR arthrograms done, which would confirm the location of the contrast either, either within the joint capsule or not within the joint capsule. And then uh, can you just go and review what the best and the second best and the worst uh, approaches were one more time? So the, the best approach that we had as far as blind, yeah. not, not using ultrasound, was the lateral mid-patellar approach. Um, that was the best at 93%, lateral mid-patellar, whereas anterolateral was the worst at 71%. Now, again, this doesn't cover all ranges or all techniques as far as approaching the knee joint. By no means is this all-inclusive. But these were the ones that were cited. These were the ones that were referenced by this particular journal article. What's the whole point to all this? Why are we so scared of injecting the wrong thing? Well, obviously, the medicine won't do what the medicine is supposed to do if you haven't placed it in the right place. That's number one. But number two, we also know that Steroids themselves are, are caustic substances, and if you're injecting them into fat pads, if you're injecting them into ligaments, into other soft tissues, you can be weakening those tissues and actually doing your patients harm rather than good. So being in the right place is, is a very important thing when you're doing these, these particular interventions. So um, the article went on to talk about how fluoroscopic guidance with, con with a contrast agent, agent would increase accuracy the most, but it would be cumbersome for daily application. I mean, I can't imagine trying to run an MSK clinic um, and do several procedures a day if you were always using fluoroscopic guidance and contrast. Um, it, you, you're talking about a huge expense, and even more important, you're talking about um, the ever-present harmful ionizing radiation that, that, that happens, you know, with, with fluoroscopic guidance. So, and it's becoming far more and more common practice is using ultrasound for these interventions. And, and even something like a knee injection, even though it, it does take a little bit of time, once as you become more efficient, uh, you know, that burden becomes less and less, and, you know, you're doing the patient's you know, good service by uh, making sure you're in the right spot. Absolutely. It's real-time imaging. It's non-ionizing. It's inexpensive, relatively speaking, compared to, you know, fluoroscopy or MR arthrogram or something like that, um, you can, you know, see where your needle is, you can locate the other anatomical structures, you can even see the flow of your injectate into the joint space. So you definitely increase your accuracy with, with sonographic guidance. The study then went on to say that their rationale for this particular approach is, and I'm going to quote here, regardless of body habitus, our experience reveals a relative paucity of soft tissues to traverse with a needle to access the knee joint with a posterior medial approach. Furthermore, the paucity of soft tissues allows for the use of higher resolution transducers, resulting in better visualization of the needle and the surrounding structures. So what they're saying is, with a posterior medial approach, your body habitus won't matter as much. It won't cause as many issues. They're arguing here that there's much less tissue to get through if you go through the posterior medial approach. 
big question is how how do they actually do this approach and what structures uh, do they avoid and how do they do that? If you break open your dusty Gray's Anatomy book and you take a look at the uh, the the superficial dissection of the of the leg on the back, the popliteal fossa anatomy. What you're going to see drawn out and idealized, like most uh, Gray's, Gray's uh, images, is you're going to see the popliteal artery and the vein. You're going to see the superior medial genicular artery. You're going to see the tibial nerve, the common fibular or perineal nerve. I don't know what we're calling it anymore. <laughs> and uh, the superior lateral genicular artery are some of the major structures, not all encompassing, but some of the major structures that at least in the drawing in Gray's Anatomy are dead center, huge. I mean, and, and, and remember, these images are not drawn to scale. And in clinical practice, if you just take an ultrasound and put it to the popliteal fossa, you're going to see that these structures are not dead center right. anyway. So materials and methods for this particular study. It's a retrospective chart review, as I said. They looked at three years worth of data from January 2009 to January 2012. They collected outcome data on 67 consecutive CT and MR arthrograms. So this was what they did. They used these patients, these 67 patients that had had an ultrasound-guided posteromedial approach knee injection and subsequently had CT and MR arthrograms to confirm that the injectate went into the right location. Uh, BMI was anywhere from 17.5 to 37. So they did have patients that were very thin and patients that were borderline morbidly obese. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All the patients were injected, like I said, with contrast and saline under sonographic guidance with this posteromedial approach. I'll get into what, what, what that is, or what targets they actually have. So we'll be able to post uh, some of the images from this article so that you can see or at least an image of the anatomical location so that you can see what they mean by posteromedial approach. I'll describe it to you when I get there, but, but it's, it's much easier to see than it is to describe verbally. Um, methods continued. They, when they were doing these injections, they, for some reason, concurrently, I mean, I guess they figured they have the, the, the sonogram probe right there, they evaluated patients for popliteal DVTs, for Baker cysts, and they looked at the status of the uh, semimembranosis and the medial hamstring, as well as the pes and serine uh, insertion point of the three muscles. How about, how about I quiz you there? What are the three <laughs> muscles of the pes and serine? Oh, uh, you have your gracilis. That's correct. Uh, semi... Tendon, uh, semitendinosis? Correct, yeah, trust your instinct. You got it, one and, more. And uh, the third one, sartorius, right? There you go, the sartorius B-I-G. So um, just to, to make this a little bit more fun, I did Google, I'm a very curious person, I did Google pes and serinus. Just, just I, I didn't even remember what it meant. I didn't remember if, uh, you know, an anatomy teacher had told me what it meant. Mm -hmm. It mean, it, It's Latin for goose foot. Right, right. And if you Google a uh, goose foot, you'll see that it, it's like three long toes coming and, and joining at its, I guess you would call it the goose's heel. Um, and it just kind of looks like three different tendons inserting at one location. So I guess that's where it comes from. The patients were injected, like we said. They had the subsequent CT and MR arthrograms. 
And they were followed up at the one-week mark and at the one-month mark. And what they were evaluated for was swelling, hemorrhage, infection, skin discoloration, another you know, potential side effect of injecting steroids, DVTs, increased pain over baseline, allergic reactions, new Baker cysts, and what they listed as quote-unquote other complications. So I guess they were just looking for any negative outcomes, but I, I assume these were their secondary outcome measures because primary outcome measures would be did we actually inject the right thing. And uh, these patients uh, had OA? These patients all had OA, that is correct. And they had, uh, what was injected in their knee? Contrast and saline, that was it. So the technique, as far as the posteromedial approach goes, they put the patient in the prone position and the knee is fully extended. They scan axially with the probe, with the ultrasound probe, and axially, anatomically speaking, is transverse, so that you can kind of orient yourself as to what they're doing. Uh, they prepped and draped in the usual sterile fashion. Um, they entered with a 25 gauge 1.5 inch, 1.5 inch, so we're talking about those smaller hypodermic needles, not the longer ones that we need sometimes with patients with, you know, larger body habitus, um, and they entered above the femoral joint line, medial to the semitendinosus tendon, lateral to the gracilis and sartorius. So this is where you would kind of want to, you know, break open your anatomy book and take a look, or even better, break open, you know, one of one of a, a dissection or prosection book where you can actually visualize the way these structures are, um, anatomically speaking. So the article showed us in in their journal article they had uh, the imaging showing uh, the needle approaching. They they took some some uh, printouts of the ultrasound when they had the needle in situ, and these patients, at least the ones that they did the printout of, um, had some pretty large effusions that kind of made it easy to know um, where they were, but they do circle exactly where the semi-membranosis is, where the gastroc is, and so on and so forth. So yeah, we'll have these pictures on the, on the Facebook page, so uh, you guys can uh, take a look at these just so you get a sense of uh, exactly uh, where the approach was taken. So, moving on, uh, Ben, you had talked to me about, um, you know, other stuff that you've seen or heard about where when we advance these needles, if we're obviously too aggressive and kind of careless, we can do damage to the menisci, and that's, and that's problematic. As we all know, the menisci don't heal too well. Um, their approach actually, quote-unquote, said that you advance until the tip makes gentle contact contact with the far posterior margin of the articular surface of the medial femoral condyle. So they're basically telling you to go in until you make, you know, contact either either with os or with, you know, soft tissue. That seems a little bit unusual uh, to me to be going into the articular cartilage, yeah. even a little I, bit. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. This is not typical of the approaches that we use, um, but but this is their approach. They're describing the way that they did it. What they did when they when they did this in real time, they were using. Remember, they were using uh, ultrasound. They used free flow of the injectate into the joint space, and that was how you know under ultrasound guidance they were saying, okay, we're in the right place, and then 
And these patients went off to their MR or their CT. And again, they print several pictures in their journal article of the contrast lighting up the capsule. You don't really see any extravasation whatsoever. So results, what happens with these patients? Zero, they reported zero patients with hemorrhage, zero patients with infection, zero patients with swelling or discoloration or increased pain or pain at the injection site. I don't know how you inject somebody and they don't report any pain at the injection site. Um, zero DVTs, zero new Baker cysts, zero allergic reactions, no new mechanical symptoms or instability, which I guess would be a clinical way of um, seeing if potentially we've done any damage to the menisci. So 32 of these 67 patients, later on, the article went on to uh, describe that they went to arthroscopy three months later, and that the surgical reports were also reviewed by the radiologists, and they did not show any evidence of cartilage injury at the injection site. Now, my critique to that is, I mean, this, this was a study that was done, right? And these are patients, you know, in the clinic and then in the OR. Are these surgeons really looking for, you know, little lacerations of the menisci once they do go in to either do total knees or to do arthroscopic repairs or so on and so forth. I mean, it's kind of questionable to say, hey, these patients had no cartilage injury whatsoever because, hey, no injury was reported in the surgical reports, in the OR reports. Yeah, I, I think that, that struck me right away as you said that as well, that, um, you know, the surgeons aren't going to be saying, oh, it looks like there's a small laceration from a prior injection from our... Uh, imaging study from, you know, three months ago. Right, right, right. So, um, I mean, take that, take that as you may, but they did use this as kind of, uh, some, some level of evidence to, to defend that they didn't result in any meniscal injuries. I'm not saying they did. I'm just saying it's, it's kind of questionable to, to use that as, uh, as your, as your backup. And another, you know, kind of question is that you, you said the end was 67, right? That's correct. So if you had 67 patients and you had a complication uh, using, you know, the traditional approaches, uh, you'd have complications pretty much, you know, serious complications like they're describing pretty much every day in clinic. Uh, so, you know, these complications aren't common enough that uh, with 67 patients, you'd, you'd expect to have very many complications at all. You'd expect to have none. Right, right. So uh, moving into their discussion, the discussion of the journal article went on to say that um, certain authors, so for instance, Joins and others in 2007 or Kendall, all argued to stay away from the posterior approach due to the proximity to the neurovascular bundle. Um, another author on AHN and others warned of the, that the saphenous nerve itself in, the, in, in that popliteal region has a lot of anatomical variability. One patient may be medial, one patient may be lateral, sometimes superior, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but these authors are saying that despite this, posteromedial and posterolateral portals are occasionally created for arthroscopy. So they're even arguing that these things much bigger than a, than a small 25-gauge uh, syringe are being inserted into this area without heavy risk or without many complications. That This is what they're arguing. 
So, uh, for instance, Ogilvy and Harris argued that the posterior medial arthroscopic portal is a soft spot. It's bounded by the medial head of the gastroc, the semimembranosus, and the MCL, and that all three genicular arteries are more than three centimeters from the joint line. But, I mean, the genicular arteries run a lot more lateral and medial to the popliteal fossa itself. So, I mean, a, a lot of this is argumentative, but I do see their point. They are saying, you know, we do use this posterior region for other procedures that are far more invasive than, than an injection. So I do understand what they're saying with their argument. Uh, if you have imaging and you're good at using your imaging, you can avoid, you know, theoretically avoid structures. You know, that's not really the, the question. The question is, you know, what's a, for us at least, the question is what's a practical method to do, you know, injections on a day-by-day -day basis. Agreed, agreed. Okay, so some of the admitted limitations, they did say, okay, this is a retrospective review, this is not pro a prospective study, this is not something that was planned. Um, they did, in quotation, say, we do not attempt to compare the accuracy or safety of the posterior medial approach to the standard approach, which I thought was a little funny because it, <laughs> most of the article, that's exactly what they were doing, is comparing the accuracy and safety to the common approaches. I mean, they even give us statistics on, you know, doing the anterolateral or the superremedial, et cetera, et cetera, approaches. Um, they do say that future prospective studies are needed to reach comparative conclusions between these different injection techniques. Um, they did mention recall bias. I mean, we talked about pain uh, and some of the adverse events at one week follow-up. There's always going to be some recall bias. And they mentioned that, uh, you know, 32 of their 67 initial patients had subsequent arthroscopy. And there's always a possibility that some within the remainder did have some sort of iatrogenic injury that may have been lost to follow-up after the four-week mark because they only follow these patients at the one-week and four-week mark. Mm -hmm. So, uh, author's conclusions. Their ultimate conclusions were, sonography increases the accuracy of injection. I don't think anyone can really argue this. I mean, we know this. This is why in clinical practice, like we said before, we're shifting toward using ultrasound as much as we can when we have it available. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't really think this is much of a, you know, contribution from this particular article. This is something that's kind of already known. Right. Um, the posteromedial technique is reproducible, safe, and accurate, and it's particularly useful with large body habits. So this is what they were saying. They were saying that it's safe, it's reproducible, it's accurate. These are some of the things that while we were going through it, we were saying, eh, how, how safe is it? It's only 67 patients. And, and, you know, how reproducible is it? You know, it's two radiologists who, you know, this is the approach that they used anyways, and they've used in the past. So, you know, how other people uh, would be able to adapt to it or learn it is, you know, still a question as well. Right. If there's anything that we can definitely agree with, though, it's, it's accurate. I mean, they, they, they were 100% accurate with their injections, but they did it under ultrasound. And we already know that ultrasound, by far and away, is going to increase your accuracy because you can see where you're putting the injectate. You're, you're seeing where the, the flow is, you're seeing the expansion of the capsule with the injection. Um, and their final conclusion was that the posteromedial technique may allow for concomitant drainage of a baker's cyst and that this should be evaluated in the future. I thought this was a little bit of a stretch to then all of a sudden 
you know, say, hey, by the way, if we're going in posteriorly, you can drain and then just, you know, maybe advance your, drain a baker cyst and maybe advance your needle. We won't go into, this is one of the things that I talked to the musculoskeletal sports med attending uh, that I reviewed this article with about was, um, I mean, how often do we even drain baker cysts? Um, I mean, these things have a near... 90 or 100 percent recurrence rate these things just refill anyway so this is not your typical way of draining baker's cysts i guess that's a good reason to take this approach though so you know there's something to be said about it it, it gives you an excuse to you know not take one of the traditional approaches because i still don't quite see you know any advantages to this approach and I, i'd be surprised if i started to see uh people starting to use this approach yeah, I, I'd be surprised if we start seeing this as, you know, your, your go-to approach. Maybe they, they have a point, and if you train it, it's just another, you know, another tool in your toolbox. And if for some other reason you may absolutely need it, it's there. It's always great to have tools, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it, be, it becoming your, your, your standard go-to approach I'm not so sure about that. I agree. So, so that's that's all I got for you today, Ben. I mean, I I think that that's a whole lot. I hope I uh, I kept it interesting. Yeah, no. So I think that's a a, a great review of uh, injection, you know, knee injections in, in general. Uh, and we kind of went over some topics in that field. You know, it's a relatively simple and straightforward, you know, procedure, but it's something that we do so often. Uh, and sometimes not without even thinking quite so much about it that um, it's it's good to have a review. I actually just saw an article uh, in the last couple of days uh, talking about um, whether it it makes any clinical difference to aspirate before uh, injecting into a knee, and that's something that again uh, we at my institution uh, you know always do. Uh, it seems like, but um, the ev and the evidence supported it, but not as strongly as I would even imagine. But that's a, a topic for a another time, and I'll uh, put that uh, put that information for that article in the in the show um, description. Uh, so, uh, Paolo, um, that was a great review of that topic. Uh, do you want to uh, do a quick update on? Uh, the NBA uh, dra uh, free agency period. I know that's something that you're interested in. So you're gonna you're gonna bring this up when I feel like my girlfriend broke up with me. Dwayne Wade just announced that he's gonna sign with Chicago, and I'm, I don't know when this podcast is gonna go up on the air, but right now it's approximately 9:48 p.m. Wednesday night, July the sixth. So this is you like like breaking news. This just my phone just gave me an alert an hour ago. And yeah, I saw that while we were talking. My phone uh, buzzed with that information. And I mean, I love the guy, man. That's that's the that's he's been the face of the franchise since since he was drafted back in '03. So, kind of painful to see him go. Um, it's a rough it's a rough year, rough couple of years for the Heat. I mean, they did great this year in the playoffs. One game away from the Eastern Conference Finals would have been a nice showdown against Cleveland. We see you and me could have could have bickered about that as well, mm -hmm. but um, but anyway, D Wade, I'm always gonna have a special place for you in my heart, my man. 
Uh, and uh, I guess the big uh, the big update, the big news, and everybody who's listening to this probably already knows is Durant to Golden State. I don't I don't know I don't know how OKC is taking it. I don't know if they're losing their minds the way <coughs> Cleveland did when LeBron first left. Um, Kevin Durant, man, I don't I don't know I don't know what to think about it because at the same time it's like can you really call him out? These super teams are not even that new of a thing people want to talk about how all the old guys never did it i mean would they have done it did they have as much bargaining power as they do now so many of these guys were buddies i mean growing up they all played you know in in the amateurs together they all knew each other so i don't i don't know how much you can really knock it but aside from that what i was i'm getting off topic what i was trying to say is these super teams i mean boston did it boston did it when their big three got together um you know kevin garnett and ray allen and paul pierce I mean, these guys were at the height of their careers kevin garnett was never going to win anything in minnesota so so when they got together they did it and it yielded a championship then you know chris bosh and d wade and and lebron got together and turned really vilified the miami heat but, I, but I, I think what rubs people the wrong way, and it's something that you know I can I I would never you know hate on Kevin Durant for making you know the decision that he made, but the fact that they had this, such a close series with them and they lost you know in epic fashion, and then he goes to the team that just beat him and a team that's already you know a championship team. It's a little different. Uh, the Warriors were maybe the, arguably the best team of all time. That's that's a great point. Best team, I mean, best team of all time, and they choke in the championship, right? But besides that, yeah, but seventy three wins. I mean, that's that's historic. That's I mean, this this year in the NBA has just been absolute insanity for anybody who's an NBA fan. Absolute super powerhouse of a team in Golden State. Now, did you hear that they picked up David West too? He left San Antonio, and now he's over at, at Golden State. Yeah, I heard so, he took the minimum. I saw. Yeah, I mean, these guys want to win. They're, it's showing that, you know, same way that when the big three got together in Miami, they all took pay cuts. They all could have made max contracts somewhere else, and they didn't. They took pay cuts and, you know, resulted in a couple of championships. All these guys, I think the league has taken notice, and they're like, you know what? We could win championships this way. Yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see over you know the next few years how, how the league responds to all these changes. Paolo, do you have a name for your second segment? Um, so, hmm, let's see. Putting me on the spot like you did your co-residence. We'll call this Real Sports with Ben and Paolo. How about that? <laughs> uh, hmm, I don't, I don't know if there's any, like, uh, copyright or trademark on that. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep working on that one. That concludes uh, this week's uh, PMR Blast podcast. Uh, one thing that we do uh, every week is we put up a new poll uh, for our audience on pegwar.com. You just have to search PMNR or physical medicine and rehabilitation. Do you have any good uh, polling questions for our audience? It could be related to the, the first topic, the second topic, uh, Golden State Wars, whatever you want. Let's go with two questions. Uh, first question, if you've listened to this podcast um, and you're a PMNR resident, how likely are you to to try to learn this post-remedial approach before graduating residency. And, and one more question. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about Kevin Durant moving to California? 
that's that's perfect. And uh, these polls are open to the public, but we'll uh, uh, we'll make an option. I have no idea what you're talking about for the first one. Uh, in case somebody <laughs> stumbles upon it. Um, so thanks again, Paolo. Uh, anyone else who's interested in helping out, as you can see, uh, we are uh, looking for people from all over the country to help out. Any level of training, uh, just uh, bring your enthusiasm to the table. Uh, it can be in anything from editing to uh, hosting to helping out with our social media, wherever your interests lie. Uh, you can contact us again on uh, email at pmrblast at gmail.com. Uh, we are, will also be starting a Twitter and Facebook page uh, likely this week in order to get those images to you. Uh, you can find us on Podbean, Bean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N, or iTunes. Uh, on iTunes, please uh, leave uh, ratings and feedback. And all of the articles that we discussed will be available in the show description. Um, thank you guys, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Thanks, Ben.